What's up, crime fighters? Welcome back. It's episode 30 of the Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers podcast. And thanks so much for the support you guys have given, for the suggestions, for the great comments, for the feedback. It's really been, uh, it really inspires me. It gives me the energy to kind of keep doing this. And I'm really glad that we've gotten uh, to this point now. We're at episode 30. We've got 30 episodes in the bank. We've got lots of listeners out there. And uh, I'm really glad to see all of you uh, find this to be useful because that's really been always been my experience that for somebody who's worked in law enforcement in Virginia for 20 years to see over and over again that you guys want to get better, that you want to learn more, that you want to be the best that you can and, uh, and, and serve your communities as best you can and help strengthen your communities. And that's what this podcast is for. We had been talking a lot about the special session and the special session is still going on. They're still voting on things. I mean, we're into two months now. Uh, the governor has really not signed anything yet, but there are some bills that are on his desk. So I expect that the next episode, maybe <laughs> we'll be able to talk about some things that are actual law that have come out of this special session. Uh, but at this point, we don't have anything we can really concrete talk about. Uh, so we'll have to hold that off for a minute. And so today, what I'm going to talk about instead, though, is a really interesting new case from the Court of Appeals about arrests and investigations in someone's curtilage, in the curtilage of their home, in the front yard of their home. We've never really delved into this in the podcast before, but there's a lot of uh, restrictions on what law enforcement can do in the front yard of someone's private residence. And we don't often, I think, spend enough time exploring uh, exploring and understanding what those restrictions are because some of them can be very surprising to people uh, and there are constitutional mandates that are very strict. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about curtilages, we're going to talk about curtilage law, and then I want to talk about this case from the Court of Appeals that just came down on October 13th, just four days ago, called Sal versus Commonwealth from Virginia Beach and, uh, and, and what this means for the daily work of law enforcement. But before we talk about Sal and uh, also this Carroll case from a couple years ago from Fairfax, uh, I want to kind of lay the foundation about what we're talking about when we talk about curtilages. I mean, the Fourth Amendment obviously protects the home, right? That's the core place that the Fourth Amendment protects. But the area within the curtilage of the home, the area sort of surrounding the home, is afforded usually the same protection or almost the same protection that the Fourth Amendment gives to the home itself. It's basically considered to be the home. So like Oliver versus United States says, the, the area immediately surrounding and associated with the home, the curtilage, is part of the home as far as the Fourth Amendment is concerned uh, because it is associated with our you know personal lives. And this doctrine goes all the way back to England and the concept of what a home was in England. Now, of course, in England, not everybody got to have a home that had land around it. Um, but those people who did got immense protections. And you imagine they may have a little wall around that area. That wall was a wall against the government, against society to come inside. That was your private space. And so you might have a garden or that kind of thing uh, connected to the house. Nowadays, in modern society, the curtilage isn't your entire yard, though. So you might sit on a you know five-acre lot or a 10-acre lot or something like that. That's not all your curtilage just because it's your yard. Instead, it's the space that is uh, where the, the, the habitation or the dwelling place, whether or not it's covered by a, uh, enclosed by a fence or not. It's the space where you would have a reasonable and legitimate expectation of privacy. 
So certainly a backyard, right? A backyard that is fenced in, uh, if it's, you know, of a reasonable size, right? That's going to be a curtilage. That's the space that's used for family purposes. It's used for domestic purposes. It might be the yard or the garden, the, uh, the field, um, that where the outside your house, outside the door where the kids play. And, you know, you've got uh, playground equipment, you've got swings or, you know, riding toys or you keep your lawnmower, that kind of stuff. That's considered to be uh, that private space. So like in Commonwealth versus Hackett, a detective, uh, you know, peered through a fence to see a drug transaction that was happening in someone's backyard. And the court said, well, that's a private space. That's their curtilage. And uh, the detective who uh, got into the curtilage, he had to climb over one fence to get in and be able to see through the other fence. He got in there uh, unlawfully because he was unlawfully inside that space. So <clears throat> keep in mind, this is distinct from when an open field is. So an open field, that might be something where like, again, you're sitting on 10 acres or 20 acres or whatever, even if it's posted by no trespassing signs, uh, that open field might still not get full Fourth Amendment protection. But the curtilage always does. So how is it that law enforcement can ever go into someone's curtilage, into someone's home? I mean, is it ever even possible? Right? In other words, if my, if my yard uh, is considered to be my home, then how is it law enforcement can walk up front to the front door and knock on the door? And this is a, as settled as the idea is that we have an expectation of privacy in our curtilage, the courts have also treated very settled the idea that nevertheless, in society, even though we expect our backyard, for example, to be private or relatively private, nevertheless, we also expect that we can walk up to the front door of someone's house and knock, right? So, for example, if you're interested in meeting your neighbors and you want to walk up to the front door and knock on the door, or, you know, let's say, for example, your, maker, your neighbors are making a lot of noise at some party, again, you could walk up to the front door and knock on the door if you wanted to influence their vote, if you wanted to, you know, your, you wanted your side to win in some upcoming election. You could also bring some materials and walk up to the front door and knock on the door. That's all true just as a member of society, right? You don't have to have some special authority. You don't have to have a warrant or permission. Um, even though, again, the common law protects someone's right to privacy, this our society also permits a visitor to approach a home uh, by the front porch, knock, wait, and then if they're not, you know, if the door isn't answered, then obviously you have to leave. So the police aren't treated any differently. They have that same uh, authority or that same permission uh, to walk up to the front door and knock on the door just like any private citizen could. Um, owners do, you know, impliedly consent to this by being in society, basically, and having a front door to a house with a walk with a walkway. And your front door might not be literally the front door, right? The, the walkway, the sort of obvious means of ingress and egress to the home would be the way that um, you'd be expected to enter. So where would the Amazon person deliver a package? Or where would your FedEx person deliver a package? Where would a uh, pizza delivery person go and answer and bring a pizza to the door? That's generally speaking where that implied invitation exists. And again, it's implied. It's not clearly stated. Um, so that it, because of that, driveways, sidewalks, front porches, and so on, don't get the Fourth Amendment protection that you would otherwise extend to the rest of someone's property, even if it is considered a part of the home, even if the backyard is considered part of the home. It doesn't get that protection because of that implied entry. And think about it. You don't put something private on your front porch uh, that you don't want other people to see or to mess with or whatever, 
right? If I have something um, private that I don't want the public to see, I would put it out in the backyard, right? Um, I wouldn't put it out on the front yard. If I put it on the front yard, then I would expect the public to see it. And obviously, the privacy of the backyard for, that I'm giving here assumes that I don't have a neighbor who can just see right into it. It assumes that I have some kind of fence up, assuming that my backyard isn't open to the public. And lots of us live in places where the backyard is open to the public, right? So in Hackett, the detective had to climb over a fence so that he could peer in and see this drug transaction happen in the backyard. But you can imagine very easily a situation where a backyard was clearly open to view from lots of places and a detective wouldn't have to climb over anything or do anything surreptitious to see a drug transaction take place. There, that wouldn't get any kind of privacy because there is no expectation of privacy in what's going on in the backyard. But that's not because it's not part of the cartilage. That's just because that whatever that person is doing, they're doing it in such a way that anyone could see it. Just the same way, for example, as if I were doing a drug transaction in my house, but I was doing it in front of a giant uh, you know, picture window that was open to everywhere, and I stood in the picture window, and I clearly was handing somebody money, and they were clearly handing me drugs, and someone across the street could see it, whether that person was my neighbor or a police officer, if I'm doing it in full view, then that's just plain view. Everyone can see it. It doesn't mean I'm not in my home, and I don't have the protections of the home. It just means that what I'm doing is in plain view. But again, you know, you're drawing a line here on the property uh, as far as what gets forth in the protection, between something where you have a curtilage and an open field, or curtilage in a place where you have an implied invitation. So where the implied invitation breaks down, though, is where the police, you know, for example, in Jardines, go beyond what that invitation is. So in Jardines, Florida versus Jardines, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case from 2013, the police bring a, do a drug-sniffing dog to the house. And they bring the drug-sniffing dog with them up to the front door. The drug-sniffing dog um, conveys to the officers that uh, the dog detects the odor of some kind of drug inside. They use that information to get a search warrant. They get a search warrant for the home, and they execute it. And Mr. Jardine says, hey, you know, I understand that a member of society that I allowed you to walk up to the front door of my house impliedly, not explicitly, but, you know, I'm a member of society. I got a front door to a house. I didn't put no trespassing signs up or anything like that. So clearly people can, members of the public can walk up to my front door. But I never said you could bring a drug-sniffing dog with you. Uh, that's not part of the expect. You know, I do still have an expectation of privacy that you're not going to start examining my, my home with some kind of sophisticated tool like a dog. And the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. They said, you know, yeah, that that makes sense. You have a reason. It's certainly reasonable for a member of the public to walk up to a house, but it's not reasonable that you would bring a drug-sniffing dog with you. So the police can walk onto the property, but they can't bring with them the drug-sniffing dog because that exceeds what's reasonable. Somebody who still has a reasonable expectation of privacy. You know, I always thought Jardines was a strange case because I don't think anybody ever really thinks about whether or not a drug-sniffing dog is brought to their house. I mean, dogs can sniff things all the time. If someone brings a dog to my house, I'm going to expect that the dog can sniff things that I can't sniff because I understand what dogs do. But if you think about what their court is saying here in Jardines, they picked on this dog, uh, but they really weren't talking about the dog. I mean, let's face it, when they're writing this case, and if you read it, they're really talking about the concern into the future that the police are going to have some kind of sophisticated form of technology that they're going to use to scan the inside of the house. And what they're really saying is, we don't want law enforcement to use this implied invitation to enter the cartilage 
to walk onto the cartilage of people's homes and use some kind of sophisticated scanning technology. What's the scanning technology? We don't know because we don't know what's going to be invented. We don't know what will be out there. Right now, there isn't anything that we're worried about, but we think that something might be out there. We're worried that something might be out there, so we're going to draw the line right now. And I think that's what they're really talking about in Jardines. But the protection is real. And they bring up the protection again when Collins versus Commonwealth comes out. And in Collins, an officer walks up a driveway, which he's allowed to do because it's it, it connects to the walkway to the, what leads to the front door of the house. But instead of turning and following that walkway to the front door of the house, in Collins, the officer continues up the driveway. So he's going past where the implied invitation is, and he's continuing up the driveway to the side of the house where the invitation sort of ends. Uh, where the invitation has already ended, and he goes and examines this motorcycle. Now, a, you know, a vehicle usually when it's out in public is subject to the Carroll Doctrine. If you have probable cause to examine it, then you can exam then you can examine it. You don't need a search warrant for it. But the court here said the fact that the vehicle was on the curtilage and it was beyond the place where an implied invitation would exist to enter the property, it had full protection as if it were inside the house. It gets the protection that a home would get. And so, as, as with any other situation with a home, there's really only three ways that I get inside of a house, right? Uh, that is with a search warrant, consent, or a search warrant or an arrest warrant, some kind of a warrant. I got to have a warrant, uh, some kind of consent or exigent circumstances. Those are the only three ways into a home. And because the only three ways in the home are warrant, consent, or exigent circumstances, that, tr that also applied to that motorcycle which was up that driveway past the point where there would be an implied invitation to walk up to the front door. And so the officer had to have either a warrant, which he didn't have, consent, which he didn't have, or exigent circumstances. Uh, and, and by the way, the Virginia courts did think that he had exigent circumstances. The court didn't disagree with the exigent circumstances. They just sent it back to Virginia and said, well, you need to figure out, does the officer have uh, a warrant, consent, or exigent circumstances? Um, ultimately, the court sustained the um, the search, but the point here is that the U.S. Supreme Court made is that this vehicle got the full protection of the home because it was in the curtilage. So <clears throat> what that brings us to then are these two cases <clears throat> that I want to talk about today, which is Carroll and then this case from four days ago uh, from the Court of Appeals called Saul from Virginia Beach. So we talk about searches a lot, but arrests uh, also apply, you know, the rule about arrest is the same way. In other words, if I want to enter someone's house to arrest somebody, I also need to have either a warrant, consent, or exigent circumstances. I can't just go into somebody's house and arrest them, right? Now, I might be in the middle of hot pursuit for a violent, dangerous offense, like a robbery or something like that. Uh, and, and in that case, obviously, that would be a form of exigent circumstance, right? I could enter their home to arrest them. But uh, in general, if I'm making a warrantless arrest inside the house, that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And that goes back to New York versus Harris, which is a 1990 case. And that's true whether I go into their house to arrest them or somehow I force them out of their home, right? I demand they come out of the house. You know, get out of here. You're under arrest. Get out of here. Get out, you know, get out of here. Get out of here. Well, they have a right to be in their home and not be arrested without a warrant, consent, or exigent circumstances under the Fourth Amendment. And so I can't just if I don't have a warrant, make a warrantless arrest in someone's house or stand in their curtilage and force them to exit the home without violating the Fourth Amendment. Um, and so that brings us to the Carroll case. And in Carroll versus Commonwealth, uh, it's a case out of Fairfax from 2018 where police, uh, where the defendant leads police on a high-speed chase on his motorcycle. 
Uh, he had just uh, left a bar where he was suspected of being intoxicated. But he escapes from the police. Officers terminate the pursuit. They go back to the bar. They figure out who he is. They get his DMV photo. They locate where he lives. And about 30 to 40 minutes after the pursuit is over, they go into his house. They go to his house, rather. They enter the curtilage of his home. They walk up the driveway. They walk up the walkway. They knock on the door. The defendant comes out of the house. And uh, the officers at this point have blocked his access to the motorcycle. And there, uh, while he's sort of standing in his, basically he's got like a little garden right in front of his house. And he's standing in his garden. He's shirtless. He's just wearing, you know, sweatpants or something. Uh, they, uh, they arrest him. And the trial court suppresses the evidence saying that the officers didn't have uh, the authority to do so because he was in his curtilage and they didn't have a warrant. The Commonwealth appeals and says, well, you get a warrant, consent, or exigent circumstances. We had exigent circumstances, is what the Commonwealth argues. Um, and the Court of Appeals suppresses the evidence as well. The Court of Appeals agrees that the suppression was proper. They say, you know, the defendant wasn't fleeing. He was inside of his home. The officers had the motorcycle secured. In other words, they were blocking his access to it, so he couldn't get on the motorcycle. There were lots of officers on the scene at that point. He wasn't a threat to the officers. He didn't appear to be fleeing. He appeared to be asleep or not answering the door. There was no evidence to destroy, so there was no exigency. And so the arrest was unlawful. Remember, if I'm in somebody's curtilage, it's like being inside their home. I can't arrest them unless I have a warrant uh, or their consent, which they're never going to consent to. Um, so, so here, the, uh, the Fourth Amendment, uh, under the Fourth Amendment, because of the kind of protection we get for the home, applies to the cartilage. Under the Fourth Amendment, the court suppressed the arrest and the evidence that came from the arrest, which included, you know, the investigations, the DUI and the eluding and all that kind of stuff. So that was a lot of evidence to uh, suppress, and it was a pretty fatal ruling. Now, it was a pretty surprising ruling, I think, because if you think about it, you think, well, you know, I mean, I'm sure in your career at some point you've gone to somebody's house at night, knocked on their door for some reason, had a conversation with them, and then at some point arrested that person, right? And that's happened before. You think, well, that's a, a pretty common thing that happens in law enforcement. And yet in Carroll, that exact scenario results in the evidence getting suppressed. So how can that be, right? Well, that's what Saul, I think, addresses and addresses, I think, in a very effective way. But before we get there, I want to talk about this case called Robinson. Now, what happens in Robinson is officers get a call for a underage drinking party at a house, and they go to this house. This is down in Abmore County, which is the Charlottesville area. They go to the house. They arrive on the scene. As they walk up, they see as they walk up the driveway in sort of the area where, they're, where there's an implied imitation. They're walking up towards the front door of the house. From that vantage point, they can see evidence there is an underage drinking party going on. And then at that point, they act on what they see. And, um, you know, kids start fleeing everywhere. It starts turning into an exigent circumstance. Uh, but, the, but, but the argument the Robinsons make is you, you shouldn't have come on my property at all. And the court uh, disagrees with that. They say the officers were lawfully on the property. They were lawfully where they were invited to be. And then at that point saw what they saw to be an exigent circumstance uh, while, while they were still in an area they were lawfully allowed to be. But Robinson sets up sort of seven factors. And they say, we're going to look at whether or not an officer is acting properly under his implied invitation or has the officer exceeded her authority 
by going beyond the scope of the implied invitation and therefore violated the Fourth Amendment, right? Because we're kind of in this weird area where there isn't real consent, right? The only three ways into a house are uh, a warrant, exigent circumstances, or consent. Well, this is consent, but it's a weird kind of consent, right? It's like an implied consent, not the kind of implied consent we have in DUI cases, but the kind of implied consent we just have in society. So are we acting in our implied consent like the officers, uh, the officer, you know, would be just walking up to the front door of the house? Or is the officer exceeding that implied consent, you know, like in um, Collins by walk, continuing to walk up the driveway or like in Jardines by bringing a drug sniffing dog? So Robinson sets up these seven factors. They say, well, look at these questions. Ask yourself these questions. Did the officer somehow spy into the house or use intrusive means like binoculars or a sensory enhancing device? Or like in Jardines, a drug-sniffing dog. Did the officer act secretly? Did the officer sneak onto the property? Or did they act openly? They you know, walk up in uniform, badge of authority with a marked patrol vehicle. Did they go to the house in daylight or did they go at night? That's a factor. Did the officer use the normal, most direct route to the house? Or did the officer, you know, come out of the property, you know, through the backyard or something like that? Is the officer attempting to talk to the resident, right? The whole concept of the implied invitation to enter your property is it's an invitation to come in the property, knock on my door and talk to me. So is that what the officer is trying to do? Or is the officer coming out of the property to search instead? Does the officer create an artificial vantage point? Um, you know, if you came out of the property, you said, well, I have the right to come on your property. So you come out of the property, but you do so, you know, with one of those, um, you know, sometimes you go to these uh, SWAT conventions or whatever, and they have these vehicles with these ladders that stick out of them, right? So you, or you come out of, you know, a fire truck with a ladder that goes up two stories and you're using the, you know, you're standing on the ladder two stories up, looking into a window, right? That would be outside the invitation. Um, do you discover what you discover accidentally or is it on purpose? Or did you go there with the purpose of discovering evidence? Right. Those are the factors the court's going to look at. So with all this in mind, what's this case Saul that I'm so excited about that I want to do a whole podcast about, right? Well, in Saul, this is a case from Virginia Beach where the defendant who's driving intoxicated, uh, it's the middle of the night, he jumps a curb, hits, nearly hits a sign, drives, drives across four lanes of traffic, continues driving on a flat tire. Pretty standard drunk behavior. An off-duty officer sees this, and she, uh, the off-duty officer, she calls in, and she says, hey, look, I'm off-duty. I'm in my POV. I'm not in uniform, but you got to do something about this guy. He's going to kill somebody. And so officers respond pretty quickly, and about 15 or 20 minutes later, they uh, go to his house. When they go to this person's house, they run the plate, they figure out where he is, they go to his house, and notice this is just like Carol, right? So there's a vehicle, and 15, 20 minutes later, you know, they get the vehicle's license plate, they figure out where the guy lives, they go to the person's house. So far, we're exactly the same facts as Carol. Uh, they get to the house, it's midnight, there's the vehicle parked in the driveway, it matches the description, it has damage consistent with the crash. Again, just like Carol, where you see the motorcycle in the driveway, it matches the description, they're like, that's the motorcycle we chased, Right. The officers walk up the driveway, they follow the marked path to the front door of the house, and they knock on the door, just like Carol. Um, the exterior lights are off. There was an interior light on inside the house. They knock on the door, and at that point, the defendant walks out of his house, and he answers questions about the crash. He talks to the officers. And there, standing in the front door, front curtilage of his house, front you know yard of his house, 
the officers arrest him for DUI and refusal. So, so far, we're very similar to Carol. A couple of things are different, I want to point out. In Carol, they bang on Carol's door, and Carol doesn't answer the door. The officers are like, well, we'll just get a warrant for him. They go to leave, and then at that point, Carol steps out, and then they have the conversation with him. So he delays a little bit in coming outside the house. Uh, but in, in whereas in Saul, he answers the door pretty quickly. But he moves to suppress, right? Just like Carol does. He says, hey, they're coming into my curtilage. They're coming into my curtilage to gather information pertaining to a criminal investigation. It's 1230 at night. It's not reasonable to come into somebody's house and knock on the door at 1230 at night, right? I said before, you know, you would expect, and nowadays, right now before the election, I'm sure a lot of people are trying to come to your house, knock on your door, and ask you questions about, the, you know, how you're going to, or talk to you about how you're going to vote during the election. You're probably thinking, you know, I don't, that's fine. If you're coming to my house at three in the afternoon, I get it. If you come to my house at 1230 at night, uh, we're going to have a tough conversation about why you're here at my house at midnight or 1230, right? And that's reasonable. Uh, uh, so the, here he says, well, then then it's not reasonable. It's not even reasonable for the FedEx person or the UPS person to come to my house at 1230 at night. Why is it reasonable for the police to come to my house at 1230 at night? That's outside of society's implied invitation. Um, there doesn't appear to be any emergency. The officers had said, you know, they didn't think anybody was hurt, uh, even though they saw damage to the vehicle. But the trial court disagrees. They, the trial court convicts the defendant of DUI, convicts the defendant of uh, the offense, and he appeals. And so he goes up on appeal, and the court of appeals considers this case. They, again, go back to the Robinson case I mentioned. They look at those Robinson, those seven Robinson factors, Right. And they say, well, what did the officers do in this case? They walked to the front door of the house and they knocked on the door. Now, that's a pretty minimal intrusion. And they confined their behavior, they confined their movements to the driveway and the delineated paths off the driveway that led to the doors that appeared to constitute the normal points of ingress and egress to the home. And as far as the time of day goes, they said, well, you know, because Robinson says you look at how they approached, uh, what they did when they approached, and you also look at the time of day. And the court did look at time of day, and they said, well, and I'm quoting here, although it is true that many people retire for the night and no longer expect to receive visitors well before midnight, circumstances present here would suggest to a reasonable officer that the defendant was not one of those people, right? In other words, you know, sure, it's not reasonable for someone to walk up to my house at 1230 at night and bang on my door. When I was in college, it was very reasonable for somebody to come to my house where I lived at 1230 at night and bang on my door because it was, you know, everybody knew I was still up. Uh, back then, I could stay up past 930 at night uh, and not be sick for a week. Um, you know, so, you know, in, in it depends on the circumstances what time of day is reasonable to knock on someone's door. I had friends, uh, and still have friends to this day, I know who stay up till 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. And I know that if I, you know, text them at 1130 or 1230 at night, they're going to answer because they're still awake. Uh, and hopefully people know, you know, that I, you shouldn't text me past, again, 930 at night because I'm never going to answer. I'm going to be asleep. Here, we know the defendant is out driving because we've seen his car out driving at midnight. Here, we know he's probably still up inside, inside the house because there's an interior light on inside the house. So it's not unreasonable to come to the house at 1230 at night and knock on the door. And think about this for your situations. Again, if you're responding to a call for service at a house where it appears that people are awake, right? Sure, time of day is a factor, but if it appears to you coming up or you've got good evidence that when you come up to the front door of the house, people are still going to be awake, then time of day isn't as much of a factor for you. And so uh, here, 
the, the concern for the safety, too, the court says, you know, hey, even though subjectively the officer didn't think that somebody was hurt, certainly there was evidence that somebody was hurt that could have been hurt because the, um, the vehicle was damaged. And so it's reasonable to think that, hey, there's a safety issue here. And because the concern for safety existed, again, it was reasonable to go up to the front door of the house at 1230 at night. So the court concludes here. We don't, and this is, I'm quoting from the court, we don't hold that every knock and talk at 1230 a.m. is reasonable, or even that knock and talks at this, hours, at this hour are presumptively reasonable. Just as the Fourth Amendment's reasonableness standard precludes us from adopting a blanket prohibition on nighttime knock and talks, it also precludes us from adopting a blanket rule that all knock and talks occurring at 1230 a.m. are presumptively reasonable. We only hold that reasonableness question is to, be deter- is to be answered by an objective review of all the facts and circumstances, and that such a review here demonstrates the officer's entry into the curtilage was reasonable. So why does this result come out differently than Carroll? It's so similar to Carroll, and yet the result is different. There's two things that are important here. The first thing that's important is, in Carroll, the trial court suppressed the evidence, and in uh, solve this most recent case, the trial court overruled the motion to suppress. And the Court of Appeals is not supposed to reverse a trial court unless the ruling is plainly wrong. So the trial court got deference in both cases. In the first case, the trial court had suppressed the evidence. In the second case, the trial court had, over, had, had overruled the motion to suppress. And in both cases, they got deference. So the trial court, again, so the Court of Appeals here, you know, didn't find either, either, trial, either ruling was plainly wrong. But the other explanation here that I think you want to focus on is that in Carroll, they never make the argument that they were acting under the implied invitation. The implied invitation to walk up to the front door of a house and knock that's discussed in Robinson and Jardines and all these other cases never gets mentioned in Carroll because I think, and I don't know this to be true, but I think based on the Court of Appeals, it never really gets clearly argued or articulated. And because it never comes up, the Court of Appeals doesn't impose that argument or bring it in. They're not going to argue something. And this is a, a very hard and fast rule for the Court of Appeals. They won't argue something that the parties don't argue. So it's because so that argument is basically waived. In Saul, that's the core of the argument the Commonwealth makes on appeal. And because of that, the court can take into consideration and rule on that implied invitation. And I think that's how you di- distinguish those two cases. I want to end, though, on something that they say in a footnote in Saul that's really important to remember. We talk about this implied invitation, but they, they point out in the footnote in Saul, and they had said this clearly in Robinson, a homeowner can limit the implied invitation by installing fences, gates, no trespassing, private property signs, indicate that, to, that neither the general public nor a law enforcement officer is, is invited to approach a home. In other words, the implied invitation is implied, but a person can revoke that by simply setting up a situation where they have no trespassing signs blocking their house. And this happens in a case called Diffendall versus Commonwealth, where somebody puts no trespassing signs up around their curtilage and make it clear that there is no invitation for anyone to enter the property. And an officer walks up to the walks up the driveway, just like in Carroll and Saul and Robinson, all these other cases. Uh, and the person says, "Get off my property!" And the officer's got a gun, and the other per- and the, uh, the person has a gun, and the officer draws the gun, and the person draws the gun, and so on. Um, 
in Diffendahl, the court says, you have a right to meet whatever force a trespasser is bringing against you with equal force. Here, the trespasser brought a gun, so you are entitled to bring a gun as a private citizen. Here, the trespasser drew the gun, so again, you, you, know, you could draw the gun, and so on and so forth. It's not brandishing. It's not assault on all enforcement officer because you have put no trespassing signs up on your property. No one's allowed to be there without clear invitation. And that's something to remember if you run into a house that has no trespassing signs and there doesn't appear to be any uh, applied invitation at all, then, then that overrides that societal implied invitation. But again, we don't run into this a lot because society does still want to get pizza delivered and Amazon packages delivered and so on. So uh, this is less of an issue. But keep in mind that from time to time, you'll run into a piece of property where that implied invitation doesn't exist. And there... That if it's if it's the curtilage, right, not an open field, but if it's the curtilage, then that area is protected just like it was inside the house, just like there were walls up, four walls and a roof around it, and the only ways in are warrant, consent, or exigent circumstances, explicit consent or exigent circumstances. Um, if you're curious about this issue, what's the difference between open field and curtilage and so on, that's a really complicated issue. Uh, that's a, an issue for another day. Uh, for today, uh, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. So thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on iTunes, Stitcher Podcasts, and SoundCloud, of course. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, but to all my law enforcement uh, buddies out there, stay safe and don't get captured. <laughs>